Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 54. The home of the cycle plays, York, Chester, Coventry and Wakefield. Last time, I looked at the more extravagant side of the medieval cycle plays in the form of the stage effects, the stage sets and the costuming. I was planning to move on to an episode that would tone things down a bit and look at some of the details of the content of the plays, but I'm going to put that off for one more episode and concentrate this time on the settings for the plays. Not the stages, but where these stages were located, the towns that were home for the plays. That, I think, will complete the scene setting and will allow for a good understanding of the plays in some detail. However, what hasn't changed is that, as I mentioned last time, I'm going to concentrate on the English mystery plays, which are more accessible to me and are generally considered to be of the highest literary quality of any of the plays. In the same respect, we generally have more information about the different locations of the English cycle plays and a better idea of how some of them developed and have come to be handed down to us than we do for their continental cousins. We know that many versions of the plays were presented in various towns and cities from through at least the 14th, 15th and into the 16th centuries. But we only have scripts of four complete cycles which have been placed to specific locations with reasonable reliability. There's also a fifth cycle which is of uncertain origin. Not all the plays from each of these cycles have survived, so when I say complete, I mean that we have some plays from each, and in some cases there's the name of the other plays that were presented as part of the cycle. To be specific, we know that from York there were 48 individual plays, from Chester there were 25, from Coventry there were 42, and from Wakefield there were 32 plays. These cities form a rough circle from the Midlands of England to the north, with Coventry being the most southerly city, Chester in the west and Wakefield and York in the north. Today you could circumnavigate a route between them by car in, say, six hours, but at the time the plays were being produced, they were places that were very distinct and distant from each other, to the extent that different dialects of English can be detected in the plays, helping us to define their point of origin. The subject of the individual plays in each cycle varies, but they share the most well-known and dramatic Bible stories, and we can think of them as generally covering very similar ground. They were, you'll remember, designed to give a consistent theological message that was controlled by the church, and were intended for worship and teaching purposes, not just for entertainment. So this commonality is perhaps not surprising. The main blocks of the theological message of the creation, the nativity and the crucifixion and the last judgment feature in all four surviving cycles, and each has different plays to reference the Old Testament prophets too. It's probably also safe to assume that there was some cross-fertilisation between cycles, where the author of one attended the performance of another or read a script while on an ecclesiastical visit and saw a good dramatic idea which he then incorporated into his next revision. This was long before the instigation of the concept of copyright, which didn't come into force in any meaningful way until 1710 in the UK and 1790 in the USA, so lifting the idea from author to author was not considered immoral, especially as the authors had all essentially the same intent, and the whole process was part of God's great work. The York plays are known from one manuscript which is held in the British Museum. It dates from around 1470 and was used as the official version of the plays, known as the Register, for over a century. The manuscript is a weighty work. There are 268 pages of parchment that are bound between two oak boards covered in leather, 
and they measure about 11 by 8 inches. The manuscript pages, although all originally transcribed by one hand, have many notes and additions, and provide a glimpse of how, if not why, plays were changed. The original compilation was probably made from individual scripts in the possession of the guilds who presented the plays. The earliest references to a play cycle being performed in York are from 1378, where the city records refer to the storage of three Corpus Christi pageant wagons. So we can infer from that that they were well established by then, having begun some time before, and were performed regularly or semi-regularly from then on. A petition from 1399 speaks to some tensions in the town over the pageant. The guilds got together to petition the city leaders, pointing out that the financial cost of staging the pageant was becoming overly burdensome to the guilds, and that it was overrunning the allocated feast day. The document also confirms that in York, the plays were performed as a pageant, moving from site to site, with each stop on the route being referred to as stations. At which point I think it's worth filling in a bit more detail on the guilds, who play such an important role in this story, and who, so far, I've only sketched in fairly lightly, as guilds defined by a trade and set up to support members and protect standards. But there's more to them than that. The guilds of the medieval cities were the principal units of social and economic organisation. They were comprised of the master craftsmen of the various trades and callings, who had gained the franchise of the city either through satisfactory apprenticeship or inheritance. The tradition of a father passing a trade to his son was already well established. As well as establishing standards of workmanship, administering the system of apprenticeship and laying down the lines of demarcation between trades, the guilds also had important social characteristics and functions. The members of a guild, their families and apprentices lived their lives in close-knit communities, often occupying the same areas of a city, as some of the surviving street names in English towns attest. Apprenticeships were long and structured, lasting many years. The young apprentices usually lived as a close member of the family of their master, but gathered as a group and often caused social problems with boisterous and drunken behaviour on holiday days. Guild members and their families tended to worship together in the same church and dine together on the feast day of their patron saint or other liturgical occasions. With the guild also therefore becoming a social unit, it's not surprising that marriages of sons and daughters from within the guild were also common. In York, the expenses of the annual performances of each play in the cycle were defrayed by a levy on the guild to which the play had been assigned. Little is known as to precisely how the guilds came to have the responsibility for particular plays, owing to the lack of evidence from the earliest period in the play's history. The appropriateness of some of the assignments to the occupations of the guild is obvious. The shipwrights building the ark, the vintners organising the play of the marriage at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. The bakers presenting the Last Supper all make at least some sense. These appropriate assignments probably had more to do with the idea of the sanctity of the craft as a daily labour, as part of the divine eternal scheme of things and the history of man's salvation, rather than any notion that it was some sort of advertising ploy by the guilds that would show off their products. Collated records from York show that over time 50 guilds were involved with presenting cycle plays. From bakers, plasterers and card makers to butchers, saddlers and ironmongers, there are too many to list here, but the full list gives us an insight into the organised and structured nature of the economic life of the city. The Glovers are there for the play of Cain and Abel, starting a tradition that would find its way into Shakespeare's story. His father was a Glover, and he went to London as a Glover's apprentice. 
The Coopers, that's barrel makers, are there, and the Guild of Parchment Makers and Bookbinders get the play of Abraham and Isaac. The list goes on. Cordwainers, that's rope makers, Tapiters, that's makers of fine cloth, Fletchers, the arrow makers, and Mercers, dealers in fine fabrics, are all included, with many others whose professions still sound familiar today. I've added the full list of guilds and their plays from York to the website blog, so you can see the full details there. The York manuscript is particularly interesting to scholars because it shows plays being added to the cycle to expand it after 1440, and then further changes are evident as the effects of the Reformation took hold across the country. York was a centre of religious activity, second only to Canterbury in the hierarchy of the church, and the town would have been swept up in and indeed would have been leading many of the changes of the period. Such monumental changes notwithstanding, the plays were performed up to 1560 in York and at their height were a huge undertaking. The surviving York script suggests that there were over 300 speaking parts in the full cycle. York was a prosperous town for a long period of time and the flowering of the plays seems to coincide with an increase in wealth in the city in the late 1400s. It may have been second to Canterbury in a religious sense, but in terms of wealth it was second only to London. We've already recognised that the plays within the cycles were updated and amended as times passed and tastes changed, but in the York manuscript we see not just amendments, but additions and deletions of complete plays from the cycle. This is not always due to religion or taste. The guilds were not always stable institutions, and they went through periods of growth, decline, amalgamation or complete closure, just as any organisation might. The form and content of the play could be changed depending on the finances available to the guild, either to make it cheaper or more lavish, depending on resources. This, of course, doesn't only apply to York, but could be an influence on any of the cycles. Whatever the factors were that meant that a new play was written to replace an existing one, the effect that is that there is no one voice evident in most of the cycles, as writers changed over time. So the literary merits of the plays at York and in other towns is inconsistent. In modern times, the city of York has revived the plays and they're being performed regularly by large amateur casts. The next performances are scheduled for 2022. The Chester Cycle, which is the most complete set of plays, is of a similar date to York. The earliest date is thought to be about 1375 and there's a tradition that the plays originated from the local abbey of St Werbler, which is now Chester Cathedral, and the records indicate that the abbey gate was the station for the first play. There are five surviving manuscripts for the Chester plays, but they're all problematic for the same reason. All five of the extant scripts were not copied until the very late 16th and early 17th century, long after the plays had stopped being performed so making any precise dating of the original works very difficult. Two Chester plays have survived outside of these five manuscripts. The play of the Antichrist, which is probably a prompt copy, dates from 1475 or a little later, and the trial of the flagellation of Christ is a copy made in 1599. However, the records from the town are better than from York, so it is slightly easier to trace the development of the plays in Chester. If we take 1375 as the start date, we can see that it took about 50 years for the performance of the plays to be fully taken over by the guilds. There's a reference to this in 1422. By 1467, eight guilds were performing the plays between them. The plays expanded over the next half century or so, and about 1521 there's a report that mentions that the plays were being stretched to fit across three days, and they were moved from the Corpus Christi Festival to be performed across the Whitsun weekend 
a close festival in the calendar that already had a three-day holiday associated with it. By 1540, the productions involved 26 guilds, but by the late 16th century performances had become sporadic. A performance in 1558 is recorded, but then not again until 1575. At that time, the city mayor was called to London to explain why he'd allowed the plays to go ahead, despite the Church of England ban that was in place by then. He somehow managed to escape punishment. The details of the dates of performances mostly come from the bands that were read to announce the plays and ask for the permission of the town for the performances to be staged. These preceded the production every year and were used in the same way that marriage bands were read to announce forthcoming weddings. The plays were brought back into the city as part of the Festival of Britain celebrations in 1951 and have been performed every five years ever since then. Having dodged the pandemic year, the next performances are due in 2023. And if you look online for Chester Mystery Play Bands, that's B-A-A-N-S, you can see a modern version of the reading from 2018. The Wakefield Cycle is also known as the Townley Plays, named after the family from Lancashire who owned the manuscript for many years. That manuscript now resides in California and is dated to about 1450. Wakefield is mentioned twice in the manuscript, but despite this, there's been some dispute about the actual location of the performances, because the only record of performances from the town are from 1554 and 1556. The Wakefield Cycle have a close relationship to the York plays. Six plays are almost identical, and there are many other close similarities. It seems most likely that the York plays were used as the basis for the Wakefield collection, and then updated and adapted once they'd been established in their new location. York and Wakefield are only about 30 miles apart, but that was a very significant difference for medieval man, and the two towns would have been very independent places at the time. But it's notable that both cycles share the same 15th century West Yorkshire dialect, suggesting that they had a lot of shared culture. The lack of good dates and the range of those that we have makes the origin date of the cycle uncertain. In some places, the York plays are seen as more sophisticated than the Wakefield plays. In others, the Wakefield plays are thought to be superior. The exact development of both cycles is obscure, and again that probably derives from the constant revision process that I've already mentioned. Setting these rather academic discussions aside, this particular cycle is regarded by many as the best example of the genre, and its anonymous author is referred to as the Wakefield Master. We know nothing of his work other than that his revisions date from the mid-15th century, but the quality of his work suggests that he had some level of education, probably as a church cleric. His particular style is detected in six of the plays, but it's likely that he had a hand in others and the general revision of earlier versions. These six plays are The Killing of Abel, Noah and His Sons, The First and Second Shepherd's Play, Herod the Great and The Great Buffeting. In each play, there's the same use of nine-line stanza poetry, a great sense of dramatic effect and some very enjoyable comic moments. His work is also notable for his use of pathos and humane characterisation. Each play runs for about 30 to 50 minutes, depending on how much music and hymn singing is used within them. It's thought that this cycle, as in York, was presented on a series of wagons positioned at various points around the town. We may think of the Wakefield cycle as the best plays, but in the 15th and 16th century the plays from Coventry were pre-eminent. Productions there were graced with royal patronage on several occasions. They're first mentioned in 1392, 
suggesting a slightly later start date than in York and Wakefield, but only two plays have survived. The Shearman and Taylor's play and the Weaver's play were copied in the mid-16th century, and both had a troubled time making it down the years. The Weaver's play was thought to be completely lost until rediscovered in 1902. Fortunately, as in Chester, the city of Coventry kept their records better. In 1445, a pageant of ten plays is recorded, with contributions from 17 guilds. The same records suggest that the ten plays were presented in only four locations in the city. Another difference is that the two plays that we have are longer than is typical in the other cycles, and they combine stories that are usually handled as individual plays. The Shearman and Taylor's play includes The Annunciation, The Nativity and The Visit of the Shepherds, and links these events with The Visit of the Magi, The Flight to Egypt and The Killing of the Innocents through speeches by Old Testament prophets. Although it's possible to see some similarities with other play cycles, there is no certain links, and the fact that the copying took place a century or more after the last performances may mean that the manuscripts were subject to much editing at that time. It's a great shame, but possibly some of the best plays from the genre are now lost to us. There is a fifth surviving play cycle, but the performance location of these plays is unknown and uncertain, so they're referred to as the N-Town cycle. The city of Lincoln has been suggested as a possible location as the language used is an East Midlands dialect. There's a single surviving manuscript that's thought to be the work of a single scribe, and it's dated to 1468. It's unique in that there is no evidence in the text of the involvement of the guilds. In addition, there are several difficulties with this manuscript that have led to much debate. The bands that announce the plays are included but there are discrepancies between the detail in them and the plays recorded in the manuscript, and that immediately suggests that this is a compilation of plays, rather than a complete cycle from a specific location. There are other oddities too. There are unusually fulsome stage directions included, some of which are in Latin, and perhaps that suggests that these plays are older than the others. There are two versions of the play of the Passion of Christ included, which appear to be intended to be rotated so each is performed every other year, but there's no obvious reason for this arrangement. In these particular plays there's a prologue, which appears to have been specially written, and the stage directions are in English, so perhaps this is the scribe making his own additions and adding meaning that's now lost to us. The cycle also includes a play of St Anne, which isn't found in any other cycle. St Anne was said to be the mother of Mary, but she's only an apocryphal character, appearing in the Gospel of James, which dates from about 150 CE. However, there was a guild of St Anne's, and interest in her and the cult of her daughter Mary was strong in the pre-Reformation period. There is a play of the Assumption of Mary included in this cycle, but from a different source, so it's possible that the scribe compiling the plays was doing so with an eye to particularly promoting or celebrating the cult of Mary. So the N-Town cycle gives us a sense of an author who's constructing a cycle with a particular purpose in mind, but with an eye to and a good knowledge of how the cycle plays were generally constructed. Whether this was a personal mission, or if he was being guided by a greater hand from the church, it's impossible to say. But it is a good reminder that all the plays were products of the theological learning and teaching of the time, and this particular collection could be an attempt to collate a master copy to enable authorities to review and ultimately control the content. That theory is supported by the apparent lack of post-Reformation editing on the manuscript. Just to give you a sense of the scope of the plays, I'll take the Wakefield cycle as an example. It's comprised of the following plays. First is the play of The Creation of Man, 
And after the killing of Abel and Noah, we get plays featuring Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the Exodus, which is also known as the Pharaoh. The eighth play is the Procession of the Prophets, which concludes the plays based on the Old Testament. The New Testament plays open with the play of Caesar Augustus, and continue with the Annunciation, the Salutation of Elizabeth, and the First Shepherd's Play. The Second Shepherd's Play, the Offerings of the Magi, the Flight to Egypt, Herod the Great, and the Purification of Mary make up the Nativity narrative. But, as something of a coda to that, we get the non-biblical Play of the Doctors. The New Testament narrative then continues with the plays of John the Baptist and Lazarus, and we then move quickly to the plays covering the Passion of Christ, the Conspiracy, the Buffeting, the Scourging, the Hanging of Judas and the Crucifixion. Then the cycle concludes with the plays The Talents, The Deliverance of Souls, The Resurrection, The Pilgrims, Thomas of India, The Ascension of the Lord and The Last Judgment. I should mention here that those groupings of plays that I've used is my own construction for convenience and there's no suggestion that they were conceived as different groups. The other English cycles are remarkably consistent with this pattern, with each featuring just very few variations. But this is not so true on the European continent. French plays pay more attention to the Old Testament stories, including the stories of Joseph and Job, for example, and generally have more variety in the choices from city to city. We could surmise that this means the English plays shared a common route that was distinct from the European tradition. That may be a step too far, and what we can say more certainly is that the English tradition, as I've mentioned before, focused on the stories that prefigured or mirrored the role of Christ as the saviour of mankind. And it's worth noting here that the source material is the Vulgate Bible, the Latin translation from Greek that was begun in 382 by Jerome of Stryden under the direction of Pope Damasus I. But other materials are obviously also included. Scenes from York about the wife of Pilate come from the apocryphal Gospel of Nicodemus, as does the basis for the Harrowing of Hell play from the same cycle. For the literary content of the plays, we only have the plays themselves to go on. As far as we know, none of the plays' authors made any comment about their work or felt the need for justification. There's no contemporary criticism or appreciation, and the only information we have is from the financial and municipal records that I've quoted from here and in previous episodes. With the exception of the Wakefield plays, there is little or no evidence of any individual author of genius or otherwise. As you've already heard, the degree of rewriting over the long period of productions hides any such clues, even if they were there in the first place. But in any case, it is unlikely that the authors were working to any particular literary theory or saw themselves as artists or dramatists. The bands that announce the plays are clearly didactic and expositional, setting the tone for the plays themselves. Their arcing theme, that redemption implies the corruption of man from the fall of Adam to the wickedness of Herod, while offering the hope of redemption, emphasises the corruption of man. We see man's failings exposed, jealousy, pride, sloth and ambition, Mankind appears ignorant, lost, and easily led astray. The divine figures, as well as the prophets, angels, and disciples, are held up in stark contrast and offer reassurance and hope. The plays played on the terror of sin, death, and punishment, and particularly on the physical suffering of man, where even the personal sufferings of Christ at the crucifixion are seen in very human terms. Within this overall structural strength, there are individual moments of dramatic strength. Most stories centre on a strong visual image, 
Christ walking on the water, the dove returning to the ark, or the mysteriously empty tomb. Yes, they were familiar and there was no tension in the outcome of the storytelling, but the visual impact of apparently seeing these miraculous happenings as if for real should not be underestimated. Having already discussed special effects and the impact of their effectiveness or not, I'm not going to linger on that here, but let's just say that if executed well, the special effect of the miracle must have left a strong and lasting impression. But the dramatic moments were not confined to the visual. The plays are peppered with characters that expound the problems of everyday life, but also keep true to the message. Noah's wife is portrayed as a railing shrew. This is clearly meant to be amusing, whatever we might think about it now, but it also sends the message of God's resetting of humanity is necessary because of mankind's behaviour. In the end, harmony between husband and wife is restored, just as it is in God's creation. Similarly, tensions between Joseph and Mary, Cain and Abel, and Pilate and his wife are comic in their intention, bringing the message close to all the audience through the familiar issues of life. The shepherds even voice some social criticism as they discuss their lot as poor men. And there is plenty of personal anguish on display. Abraham's dilemma over serving his God or preserving the life of his child borders on the tragic, and there is plenty of cruelty in the form of man enjoying his destructive impulses. The tormentors of Jesus in the buffeting of Christ are the best example of this, but think also of the soldier's cruelty in the slaughter of the innocents. Individual characterisation is never thought of as the strongest point of these plays, but there are a few individuals who stand out. Mrs Noah, Mac the shepherd, Pilate, who comes across surprisingly sympathetically, even Herod, but these are the exceptions, where the flourish and talent of the authors has been allowed to come to the fore and survived the censor's pen. What stands out more than the individuals is the reaction of the group at monumental events. The shepherds, the kings, the tormentors, even the gangs of devils provide commentary and reaction to the events of the plays and give the common man a voice, a significant feature of the plays. The authors of the plays were mostly clerics of the church and as such had skills to promote their message. They probably worked mostly independently, but there's enough common heritage and probably a deal of copying and building off each other at times so that there is a perception of a coherent group of authors. The Wakefield master stands out as leading the pack in literary terms and his worldview is definitely sharper and more acerbic than it is in the other authors. But he is nevertheless part of this group that were able to express the mystery of God's plan through excerpts from the Bible narrative and managed to give us a small window into medieval life and thought. And it's interesting to note how the Wakefield plays have lived on. They and the others are still being regularly performed in theatres and often in special locations in or around a town, using local amateurs and extras, emulating the original performance styles. They've also been much updated and adapted. The original language, which is just the wrong side of the modernisation of English that makes Elizabethan plays much easier for us to follow, can be a barrier and modern translations in simple modern English and using music and singing generally work very well. Adrian Henry's 1988 commission for Wakefield's centenary celebrations is a particularly successful version. But there are many others. It's a continuation of a very long tradition, and we can only hope that it will be with us for a very long time to come. Next time, we'll get to look in detail at some of the plays, so as previously promised, we'll be in the company of Shepherds, the Devil and many others.
In the meantime, please visit the website, that's www.thehistoryofeuropeantheatre.com, to see more on some of the things that we've covered in the last few episodes. And you can join the Facebook group or follow the podcast on Twitter. If you'd like to support the show, please post a rating or even a review on Apple Podcasts or go to patreon.com for more content for a small monthly fee. All contributions go towards offsetting the costs of hosting the podcast and are gratefully received. If you have any comments, questions or concerns, you can always contact me by email on thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.